Thank you for tuning in to Movie Geeks United. Just ask anyone who's worked with him, or the legions of cineasts who have followed his work over the years. Newton Thomas Siegel is one of the most distinctive cinematographers working today. Consider his early experiences in documentaries, to his string of films with director Brian Singer, which include The Usual Suspects and X-Men, to his unforgettable work in films like Drive, Three Kings, and last year's smash hit, Bohemian Rhapsody. Now, he's teamed up with one of the boldest filmmakers of his generation, Spike Lee, for his new film, The Five Bloods, a searing and ambitious project that follows four Vietnam War buddies who reconvene in the jungle for one last mission. The film is available to stream on Netflix starting June 12th. We spoke with Tom Siegel about all of this and much more, beginning with his appreciation for Spike's work. Like yourself, I, I, I love his work, and his work is so pertinent to you know, our American experience and what's happening in our country. Um, so I... Um, uh, you know, I, I would always jump at the chance to work with Spike. Yeah. So, but this is the, f- this is the first project you've worked with him on, right? There were, there were no commercials or videos before this. Yeah. Right? Commercials. I did. I've done a number of commercials with Spike. Okay. Um, for the NBA and stuff like that. But, um, this is the first, uh, film that I've been able to do with him. Tell me about the the initial meetings that you had with him about this project and the, kind of the process of feeling each other out and making sure you you, you share a creative vision for this. You know, I think uh, uh, I've known Spike for a while and, and, you know, I know his history in Brooklyn and NYU and where he came out of. And I think he knows about me and growing up in Detroit and coming to New York and making documentaries. So there's a certain commonality, I think, before we even talked about this specific film. Uh, and then, uh, you know, he sent me the script and uh, I read it and I was fascinated with it, in particular things like, um, you know, these men going back in time and their memories mm-hmm. and yet staying the same age. And some of the... Uh, the, the methodology that Spike was interested in using to tell this story. Um, so, uh, you know, we had very um, limited prep time, unfortunately. Um, it was, uh, it was a, uh, I was finishing another show. I literally finished one day and started on Spike's movie the next. Mm. And Spike was, had just come off of Black Klansman and was, doing the promotion for um, uh, for the uh, awards season. So we really jumped into it head first and uh, just, you know, hit the ground running. Um, and the, a lot of the conversations came out of um, seeing, um, uh, you know, look, looking at footage together and, um, looking at archival stuff and um, just the sort of day-to-day um, execution, you know, scouting all of the stuff that you do to make a movie. Mm. Um, and uh, the, you know, it, it, it evolved. And, you know, Spike had his um, things that he clearly already 
um, thought of or already um, was considering doing for the film and ideas that he had. And he was, um, uh, you know, he was, you know, he was open to some new ones and uh, we got it done. The kind of the variations in aspect ratios and, and film stock and that sort of thing. Was that very early on? Was that already firmly in his mind? How to, what those would represent in the film and how to use them? Um, no, I think that came more out of um, the 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 uh, driving factor in many ways was uh, the decision to shoot the flashbacks of uh, Vietnam in 16 millimeter and to respect the aspect ratio, the 16 by the, um, excuse me, the 16 millimeter aspect ratio and the way that it would have been shot if the material, you know, if it was a real newsreel cameraman in the, during the war in Vietnam. And so right there, you know, we, we sort of broke down the, 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 or, or, or opened up the idea that there could be multiple aspect ratios. Um, and, you know, I think Spike, from the beginning, knew he was going to be using a lot of uh, archival footage, and which would be predominantly, uh, um, you know, 133 or 4x3. Um, and um, so from that point, the, the sort of more subtle um, uh, version of opening up the top and the bottom of the letterbox from the 240 um, mm. of Ho Chi Minh City to the 185 of the jungle um, was, you know, just sort of the next inevitable consideration. Um, the, the you know, in the digital world, the notion of aspect ratio is no longer as rigid as it once was, and there's really no reason to be beholden to um, you know, a story has to be told with only one aspect ratio. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, to a certain degree, a slightly arbitrary choice. Those transitions are stunning. I mean, in, in the way they they kind of speak to the, the nature of memory, I think it's beautifully done. I had, I had a couple of questions about filming actors and capturing performance. Because in this film, uh, you're following a group of four, five characters throughout the entire run of it and so i would think that capturing the spontaneity of their interaction would be paramount so when you're shooting a scene like whether it's the opening at the at the hotel or a little bit later on in the the bar restaurant i mean how many how many cameras do you have on them how how do you make sure you capture the nuances of their interaction back and forth um, well, you know, the script was pretty well defined and as, as terrific as the performances were, um, I wouldn't say that there was a lot of improvisation, let's say. Um, but there was certainly, um, times when Spike wanted to be able to use, you know, different act, both actors, let's say, in the course of a, um, uh, of a of a conversation. Um, an example would be when um, when uh, Otis 
goes and has dinner with his former lover um, and discovers he has a daughter. Uh, that scene was done with three cameras and mm. we, you know, we had a wide shot and a couple of um, uh, angles, you know, one on each actor so that um, he was able to intercut, you know, between the actors within the same take. And it was tough. You know, it was done in a very small environment, um, uh, very low ceilings, practical location. Um, so uh, we pulled it off, but I, 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 I can't say it was easy. That's for sure. Well, there, and then there's the flip side of that, which is, uh, you know, I, I, I would imagine that in any scene with actors, the camera is in a way a scene partner, but that's kind of a more metaphorical uh, way of looking at it, but there there are scenes late late in the film with Delroy Lindo as he's going mad, where the camera is literally his scene partner. It's him looking straight into the barrel of that camera. Uh, I'm, uh, and I'm wondering if you could share any insights into capturing those moments. Um, well, you know, the direct address and that type of that type of performance and shooting, you know, for, is, is very it's very much part of uh, Spike's um, signature mm. and that's very much a single camera. And that, like you say, it really is a dance with camera and actor. And um, because he's playing to the camera, he really, um, you know, it was Delroy's stage and we really just had to sort of kick back and let him do his thing. And, you know, he, you could, you, you could tell, as we were um, getting deeper and deeper into production, how thoroughly he was like, you know, he was taking over this movie. I mean, he was like just on fire. Mm. And um, those scenes were, you know, there weren't a lot of takes. Uh, Spike is very decisive and he kind of knows what he wants. And it's, um, yeah, it's pretty yeah, that's a, that's a towering performance from Lindo yeah. in this movie. My God. You shot in uh, partially in Ho Chi Minh City, and my understanding is that's an area that is rarely filmed. Vietnam has a kind of a burgeoning um, film industry, I think, as they're slowly kind of opening up um, to the West and on, on a business level. An economic level, they're starting to develop a, a film industry. Um, it's a little, you know, there's a lot of politics involved, and they're still figuring out exactly um, how they're going to do it. But I think they see um, Thailand next door, which has a very developed and you know uh, film industry that's been around for quite some time. And um, I think they um, um, there's uh, enough sort of young artists and filmmakers that, you know, want to put Vietnam on the map as a, as a location that it's starting to happen. It, it, mm. It's complicated. Um, you know, it's a, it's a very specific political and decision-making structure that you have to deal with. So, yeah. you know, even for us, it was a little touch and go whether or not we would be able to go in there. Um, but it's not, um, it's not unheard of, you know, but creatively, I, uh, 
I, I wanted to know what what you were looking for when you're when you're trying to capture not only something that works practically for the scenes you're playing out, but also to capture something of the personality of the landscape of of that area that you're filming. What was that process like? Well, I think you you know you want to be true. You want to be true in a film like this. It was so much about these guys' experience forty years ago. Mm-hmm. And then their experience in revisiting it that you just really want it to feel real, to feel you want to portray it um, as it is. It's not it's for the, the film, for all of its expressionism and, and, and um, very particular stylistic things that Spike does at the end of the day, you know, he's really trying to honor the, 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 the memories of these guys and the experience of these guys. And I think Spike also has a, you know, a lot of respect for the Vietnamese and the Vietnamese point of view. And he, and he wanted to, um, you know, it's so rarely been um, portrayed or seen um, in film that uh, I think that was very important for him to express. And, it, it, you know, he he was very adamant about only casting Vietnamese actors in the speaking, you know, Vietnamese-speaking roles. Mm-hmm. And even when it came to the extras, even when we were in Thailand, you know, he fought hard to, to bring uh, Vietnamese extras in. Fortunately, and one of the reasons that a lot of people do shoot in, in Thailand um, for Vietnam is that geographically it's not radically different. It's, it's, you know, it's the same sort of tropical jungle area and the countries have a certain um, shared histories. Um, but the, um, I think as much as possible, he really wanted the, the Ho Chi Minh to have a character mm-hmm. and the jungle to have a character. And I think that was also one of the reasons that we changed the aspect ratio a little bit, just to give, you know, a different sort of um, dressing to each one of those environments mm. and to distinguish between them. It's beautifully done. The the when you're shooting in those jung- the jungle locations, I'm not I, I I don't know how accessible those locations are. I mean, the the, the practical considerations of how do we get to this, how do we get our big filmmaking group to this place to to shoot this stuff? Uh, Could you tell me a little bit about that? Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, generally speaking, it's, there's always a logistical challenge. And I, um, you know, um, I wouldn't say that it was like during the Revenant, you know, Mm. Um, but, um, I would say that, you know, we, we tried to choose and find locations that, you know, had a reasonable degree of accessibility so you could at least get vehicles maybe within a quarter mile or, or, uh, or so of your location. Um, we had some, uh, locations that were a little, um, you know, uh, going, into the jungle up and down hills where you have a very narrow path and you have to kind of hire a number of local villagers to help us carry gear in and out. Um, 
So there was certainly some, um, you know, difficult um, egress locations, but um, that just comes with the territory of, you know, shooting in a location like that. Yeah. But going from something like the jungle and trying to capture something of a region that uh, that that is is rarely filmed, then you have something like uh, Los Angeles, which you shot, which is filmed all the time, which you captured so beautifully in in Drive. And I, I'm wondering what of Los Angeles you, you wanted to get the spirit of in, in that film. Um, well. You know, it, it goes back to your earlier question. And um, when, when you have a film, there are some films that when you watch them or when you read the story, let's say, before, you know, before you start shooting, that you realize could be done anywhere or in many locations. And sometimes that's the point, you know. Um, and then there are those films where the uh, or those stories really where location where the place is very much a part of your story it's it, it's it's a character in the mm. story mm-hmm. and um both uh drive and um uh you know five bloods are examples of that you know five bloods is about vietnam it's about the place as much as it's about the men uh, Drive, you know, was um, Nicholas Winding Refn's first film in, in Los Angeles, and he comes from Denmark and was very fascinated with Hollywood and, you know, shooting in Hollywood and a Hollywood crew and all that stuff. So I think for him and for myself, it was a, it was a real great um, uh, uh, um, opportunity to explore the part of L.A. that you don't, see that much in film is sort of the the the, the little uh, kind of grittier ur- urban-esque you know sidewalk stoplight street light storefront you know um kind of uh less glamorous um uh, uh less glamorous part of los angeles than the palm trees and beach in Beverly Hills we usually see so you know and it, it drive was um, photographed right when the um, Alexa camera had just come out and so for me it was also a, a great um, opportunity to explore this new technology and how much you could use the actual existing urban lighting infrastructure and, and kind of you know, celebrate it and turn it into something beautiful. Mm. What we ordinarily think of as ugly or garish. It is, I, you know, I, I, I love LA and I love filmmakers that can capture it in a, in a unique way. I mean, there's so many personalities of Los Angeles, you know, there's so many options there, but you know, drive is kind of an example of a, of a neon noir. Uh, I'm looking through your career and there seems to be a streak of films that play in that noir wheelhouse, whether it be something like blood and wine or trigger effect or, uh, and I'm wondering, are, are, are those films of particular, uh, 
uh, interest to you? I mean, would you could you see yourself back in the 40s and 50s really latching on to that kind of noir sensibility? Well, I think, uh, I, I mean, I think my attraction to stories is tends to be dramatic. I, I love watching comedies, for instance, but it's not really something I, I uh, connect with artistically. Um, but in every story I'm telling, I'm looking for, uh, for, for, for the drama in it, for the, the, the lightness on the other side of the darkness. And, um, those explorations of, uh, human existence, of human frailty, of human nature, um, which are so intrinsical to, to, um, film noir, I think is what attracts me a lot. And, um, it's not, you know, it, it, it can take its form in more traditional film noir, like a, like a blood and wine, mm. or it can even be seen in a, you know, in like an, an X-Men movie or something where you, um, at least for parts of the movie, you know, you bring about some of that, um, that kind of struggle with, with inner demons of, right. of, of your humanness. So, um, I think that's just part of my sensibility. And I think I bring that to almost every film I do, whether it's, uh, whether it's really structured as a noir or not. You know, speaking about another part of your sensibility, I'm sure it came in handy with something like the five bloods is your documentary work. Uh, and, and some of that uh, required you to film in, you know, inhospitable conditions. <laughs> uh, yeah. I, I think I, I remember a few years ago, I spoke to Robert Richardson and he talked a little bit about you and your work in the documentary realm. Uh, and I'm wondering if you could, you could talk a, a little bit about that and, and what carries over for you, the lessons that you learned from working in that form. Yeah. I mean, I, I, I met Bob um, when I did Platoon, and uh, I, I, Oliver Stone, I think, um, with the, the, the encouragement of uh, both uh, Bob and even more so, I think Bob's wife, um, had seen some documentaries I'd done, and he was intrigued by it, and that's what um, brought uh, brought me to platoon and, um, uh, you know, a, a, a friendship, uh, and, uh, on and off working relationship with Bob ever since. Um, and I think what appealed to him, um, was that sensibility and how he wanted to bring it to platoon. And, uh, I remember at the time we did platoon, I was really, I was really proud of the, um, final battle sequence there because I thought that the chaos mm. that we had created and the way we shot it was uh, the closest thing that at that time I had seen uh, in a war film to my experience from having shot documentaries um, in war zones. The, the one thing that, you know, um, you know, um, Bob went to, uh, Rhode Island School of Design, and then he went on to AFI. I, I spent a year at the Whitney. I spent a little time uh, working for a place called Media Study. I spent a little time at Hampshire College. But I didn't really go to a film school in the same way that he did, um, which sometimes I, you know, wish I had. But 
um, what I did do in doing documentaries and in being in, um, you know, places where history was being made mm. was I, I developed a sort of a, a, a collective set of life experiences that I think helped me make the transition to narrative filmmaking and continue to inform it. Um, there's a kind of, um, you know, there's this funny thing when you do, um, uh, uh, documentaries where you, you, um, you know, you, w you wish you could have a take two or that, you know, that the guy who's, you know, running would run in the other direction so that the light would be better. But that's just, you know, you get what you take when you're shooting a, a cinema verite documentary. But then you get on a feature film set and, you know, you wish that something would happen that you hadn't already read in the script, yeah. that you would be surprised. So it's, it's, um, it's a funny, uh, way that the two, the two forms can inform e each other. And I've tried to, um, to bring some of that, um, that, uh, kind of energy that I always found the documentaries had into the feature film world, sometimes successfully, sometimes not. You know, mm. um, those origins and that beginning doing documentary is never far from my consciousness. And I would think it would it would force you to kind of uh, just like actors talk about it, but to, to exist in the moment and and be versatile enough to know, no, there's something over here. I mean, the, the, there's something special yeah. that we need to capture here. I mean, you really have to have a strong detection of those those possibilities. Yeah. And and I think it's informed a lot of, um, like my camera operating in the past, you know, where, mm -hmm. uh, I, I, I would see, uh, you know, an actor, um, doing something and maybe the camera would drift down and catch it and then come back up and it would really be a response to something an actor was doing. And, you know, even in the film I just finished, um, uh, for the Russo brothers, uh, called Cherry. Uh, there's a, a, a moment early in, um, in the film when the Tom Holland's character, I noticed that Tom was playing with this wedding ring that he had. And, um, I went down and captured it and, and it, it became, it evolved into a whole sort of, I don't know if I want to call it a story point or a motif, um, that, um, worked its way into the film several times and later. So I think some of that openness to what, um, what the, uh, is unfolding in front of you. Yeah. Um, I got from doing documentaries and I, I continue to, uh, try to keep that alive. Yeah. And that made me think of when you just mentioned the, the moment with the ring, uh, there's another, there's a director that I feel is really good at that. And he's also a great actor and that's Robert Redford. He's great at finding little little moments that speak to the subtext of character, uh, and he captures them with his camera. It, it, he's, it, his perception is just off the charts. And you worked with him on the conspiracy, the, the Lincoln Project. I yeah. Did. yeah. Wow. Yeah, he's. Um, I was really. Uh, it was pretty amazing, you know. Just to, you're you're working with like uh, such a. It sounds dehumanizing, but such a a, 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 a icon of film history and of cinema, mm. a guy who 
represents so much, you know, uh, on so many levels. I mean, not just the acting and not just the directing, but Sundance and, you know, his work on the environment. And this is, you know, uh, to work with somebody that's had that kind of legacy, should we all have 10% of that kind of impact on the world? It'd be great. Yeah, yeah. My last question for you. I asked this of all my uh, the cinematographers I have on the show. I don't know if you've taught uh, uh, cinematography to, to, to young hopefuls, but if you were to do that and, and, and you were to want to impart various lessons about cinematography from the history of film, what, what scenes come to mind that you would show these students and, and what lessons would you teach ab- about these scenes? Oh boy. <laughs> That's a big, um, I mean, big question. It's a big question. There's so many, but you know, if, if you're talking about like looking at films, um, sometimes it's, you know, you can look at 2001 and apocalypse now and see, you know, cinematography that is off the charts. It's absolutely genius, but you can also look at a movie like searching for Bobby Fisher, mm. which, uh, is about, a young boy playing chess, the most cerebral game in the world. There's not a thing that's visual about it. And the movie is stunning. Mm. Uh, every choice of lighting and camera is, is brilliant. Um, and I think, um, you know, it's sometimes the real artistry is in how we capture and portray the mundane or the, or the internal, uh, even more than the spectacle because, uh, spectacle is, is comparatively easy when you think about it. It's, you know, what's in front of the camera is given to you, uh, on a, on a plate compared to when you see something like, um, like a young boy playing chess and it's, you know, just visually moving. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what I would say. Uh, well, Tom, my friend, thank you so much. First of all, for your beautiful work. It's meant a lot to be over the years and and secondly for giving me time to talk about it today thank you my pleasure <laughs>